Good morning. My name is Dave, Dave Geldart. I'd love to meet you again if I haven't. Uh, why are you here this morning? I mean, I, someone could have yelled at Yeah, coffee. You don't have to answer out loud, although those are uh, kind of fun sometimes. Why are you here this morning? Our hope and our goal in gathering together isn't just to get through something or check off a box. We actually want to be together to hear from God and encounter him. And so when we, uh, we, when we have the band up here and we're singing uh, praise and worship songs, that's a part of it. We hope that you experience uh, God's presence through that time. And uh, when we open up the, the Bible, uh, it, we, we don't want to just interface with our heart or our head, but also our hearts. And so uh, that means that we're, we are uh, coming to the scriptures uh, expectant that God will speak. And so if you're here this morning and, the, and you're not quite sure about all that stuff, that's fine. I would encourage you, uh, like we've uh, said sometimes in the past, why not cry out to God in your heart right now and just say, if you're there, will you please speak to me? What, what do you have to lose, Right. And so I'm gonna, I'm gonna give us uh, right now and then a few times throughout the teaching today, we're gonna have some times to pause and to answer a question. So if you've got pen and paper or a journal, great. I would encourage you to have that out today in particular. It'll help you so that you don't just kind of bounce through this stuff. Um, if you've got a, a cell phone, you wanna open up the notes app, that's great too. But the one I wanna start off with today is how am I coming in today? And I'm going to give you a few, uh, a few long seconds to consider, how am I coming in today? I'm coming in a little tired, <laughs> if I'm honest. Did a little last minute sermon prep last night. How are you coming in? All right. So we are in this series about the parables. So parables of Jesus. The parables are these kind of masterful teaching tools that Jesus used and others uh, that taught some really powerful truths through story. It's a, uh, it, it usually culminates in one strong sucker punch point that demands a response. And so uh, these are true not only for Jesus' original audience, but for you today, there's going to be some really powerful teaching that can demand a response. Uh, my own misunderstanding of the parable today, we're going to be looking at the parable of the ten minas, and tell you what a mina is in Luke 19. My own misunderstanding of this parable has contributed, at least in part, to some great pain in my life, uh, some confusion that leads to fear and exhaustion. So the context of the, the parable we're talking about today is Jesus has just got done talking to Zacchaeus. So those who may know a little bit about the Bible, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. Okay, so the, the children's song is talking about uh, actually a pretty nasty dude. This guy, Zacchaeus, was an Al Capone type of figure. He was uh, stealing money from his own people uh, and uh, taking a lot off the top and then giving the other taxes to Rome. He was a bad dude. Everyone hated him. But the story ends with Jesus saying, actually, I see you in your heart. Yes, salvation today has come to your house. I want you because you are repenting. 
And so the, the verse right before where we're jumping in today, Jesus says, the son of man, his own word for himself, came to seek and save the lost. That's why I came. So everyone can turn to me if they want. And so the crowds are in a Twitter, a titter, a Twitter. It's probably not Twitter. Maybe if they had Twitter. The, the crowds are all excited because they're sensing this guy, Jesus, he is the one we're waiting for. He is the one we've been waiting for that's going to come and save us. And so Jesus is headed right now, as he tells this parable, he's headed towards Jerusalem, where everyone expects, and at least halfway correctly, that he is going to be crowned king. And he's finally going to deliver the people uh, from Roman rule and bring in the age of, uh, that God has promised them. Uh, they're really thinking in kind of military, kind of conquering terms here. And so Jesus tells them this parable, and we'll go ahead and switch in to uh, verse 11 starts why he told this parable. While they, they, the crowds, were listening to this, he, Jesus, went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought the kingdom of God was going to appear at once, right now. So he's telling them this because they thought it was gonna happen right away like they thought, but he's like, actually, it's not gonna happen quite like you thought. All right, so here's the parable. Now, hang with me on this one. And my guess is, if you're paying attention uh, you might find some points as we read this that you're like, that doesn't make sense, or Ugh, that's kind of weird. I don't think I like that. Pay attention to those points of resistance or confusion. Those will be important points as we move through. All right, verse 12. He said, Jesus said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him, and they sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. In context, actually, man is not in there. It's like even a little bit more you know, derogatory. We don't want this to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, sir. Your mina has earned 10 more. Well done. Thank you. Well done. Good and, and my good servant, the master replied, because you've been trustworthy in a great, or with a small matter, now take charge of 10 cities. The second one came and said, sir, your mina has earned five more. The master said, great, you're gonna be in charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, sir, here's your mina. I kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you're a hard man. You take out what you don't put in, you reap what you didn't sow. And the master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I'm a hard man, taking out what I didn't put in, reaping what I didn't, say, didn't sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit? so that when I came back, I would have at least collected it with interest. And then he said to those standing by, take his mina away and give it to the one who has 10 minas. Sir, they asked, he already has 10, or they said. And he said, I tell you to everyone who has, more will be given, but the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who didn't want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. And after this, after Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, continuing to go up towards Jerusalem. 
The parable of the 10 minas. Let's see if we can figure this one out. And as we do, let's pray. And I would encourage you to pray with me. Jesus, this is a a teaching that you have given back then and there and also to us now. Lord, help us to understand it. Help us to have ears that are able to hear what you are trying to say. There's some weird stuff in here and some stuff that I think can be pretty easily misunderstood. Lord, make it clear to us today and show us your heart. I'd encourage you guys to pray again just in your own hearts right now. Lord, speak to me. Yes, Lord, speak to us. All right. So what's going on here? Because there's some kind of some weird stuff. So a little bit of historical context is going to be helpful. Some stuff that I didn't know uh, that I, but when I was first reading this. Um, the story, first of all, is a parable. It's not a real story, but it should have been very familiar. The themes are very familiar to his original audience. Um, a little bit of history context here might help. Under Roman rule at that time, kings still had to go away and meet with the emperor to be appointed king over their land, and then they would return. It wasn't a for sure thing. They had to receive authority. And this parable, so when Jesus told this, he was telling this in the spring of 33 AD. So almost 2,000 years ago now. But as, uh, as he was telling this, his original audience uh, would have been familiar with something that had happened about a generation or two before. In uh, 40 BC, about 70 years before, Herod the Great traveled to Rome to seek permission to become king of Judea, where they were. And he was granted it. And, but it took him almost three years to get back and actually set it all up. All right. Then, almost 36 years after that, in 4 BC when he died, uh, his children, uh, Archelaus and Antipas, they went to Rome to meet with the emperor to be awarded kingship over the land. And at that time, uh, when Archelaus left, he was already kind of a sub-ruler, he took the royal treasury and distributed it amongst his loyal servants and said, use this until I come back. At the time, the Jews did not like these guys at all. They weren't great dudes. And they sent a delegation of 50 Jewish leaders all the way to Rome to argue against uh, their bid to become king. And they specifically told the, uh, the emperor, we do not want these to become king. Here, the Jews were successful, at least in part. The, uh, the kingship was not granted to them, at least in, uh, in full. And they, it, the kingdom was kind of divided up and they got uh, different little sections of it. And so, uh, angered at this, uh, when Archelaus came back, he arranged to have 3,000 of his enemies brought into the temple courts, the temple courts, and slaughtered before him. Does that sound familiar? This is a very recent, very familiar uh, uh, context historical context to this passage. Jesus was using familiar political themes that were repeated a lot to get across what he's trying to teach. But remember, all of his teachings have a twist and demand a response. So let's see what that is. Just a few more little pieces of info to help us understand this. First of all, what is a mina? 
A little bit of context, I think you could figure this out. A mina is a unit of money. It actually was a huge unit of money back in the ancient world. It was equivalent to about 100 days labor for a, a day laborer, 100 days payment. And so I did a little bit of math. In Manhattan, Kansas, the average day laborer rate is about $16 an hour these days. So 100 days of that works out to about $13,000 in today's money. So one mina, 13K, decent chunk of change. And so uh, the nobleman gives each, gives each of his servants $13,000 to engage in trade until I return. So I want to talk about this word until. And as I do, I'm going to give you just a little bit of Bible translation background. And hopefully this is helpful to you. If you, uh, if you zone out here, uh, you can do so. But my guess is this might be helpful. Uh, when you translate one language into another, maybe Spanish into English, you do your best. Because it's not always exactly word for word. Sometimes there's a word that's exactly the same as in the other language, but usually there's a little bit of slight differences. But so with related languages, romance languages like English and Spanish are not that hard to translate back and forth. But it gets a little bit more complicated because sometimes phrases are used in different ways and they mean really opposite things sometimes. So when you're translating, you're always doing your best. You're always making decisions about how uh, words and ideas make their way into the new language. And this isn't necessarily a problem. We can actually have very good translations of things, but it, it takes a little bit of thought and a little bit of understanding. This is more difficult when you translate very different languages into, into one another. And so uh, whole words or even phrases can mean very different things or be arranged in different ways. So you do your best. You have to, uh, you have to make some choices about how you think the meaning of the original language is going to be best conveyed. And so highly educated scholars can differ slightly in their translation of one language to another, especially if the languages are separated in kind or even in time by a great deal of distance. All right, does that make sense? All right, so we're going back to high school, uh, Spanish class. Some of you guys are having traumatic um, moments right now. We're, you, don't all, you don't have to memorize all the Bible translation stuff, but I think some of it is helpful as we go through the Bible and understand it. Uh, one, one of the takeaways I want you to have and it's not going to be the main point of this teaching, though, is that we can actually be very confident in the translation of our English Bible. We can be very confident. In fact, we have so many ancient manuscripts of these texts, very ancient, that we can compare them to one another. We've got thousands upon thousands upon thousands of copies that help us to get very, very confident of what we think the original meaning was. So better than any ancient text preserved in the entire world, the Bible stands alone. If you're interested in more about this, uh, check out on our website, tallgrassatthewell.church, under the teachings, you can search for a 2018 teaching I gave called, uh, oh, what was it called? Why Believe the Bible. It goes more into this if you're interested. But we can be very confident in our Bible translation. But as with anything, there are sometimes a few different parts where things could be translated one way or the other, and it's not completely clear. And so there's two of those in our passage today. There's a nuanced difference that I think is gonna make a difference in how we understand this. And for me, my misunderstanding of this passage has, uh, has made a big difference in my life. So see if it does for you. So the word until is one of them. This word could be translated until, or it could be translated because. And so if it's until, it's kind of a time word here. And the sense of the passage is, uh, the master says, put my money to work until I come back. Make sure you get it all in before, in, before I come back. I want to see uh, how much you get. 
So uh, there's kind of a time-boundedness of that word. But it also could be translated, because I'll come back just as easily. And I'm going to argue today that this, as well as one more slight difference, uh, it could make more sense. Uh, and I'll, I'll share some scholarship why that's true. So because I'll come back slightly changes the meaning. He's saying, I'm coming back, so conduct business in my name. Okay? Build on this just a little bit. And uh, the, 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 the sense more in here is, I want you to be faithful to me with my money. Use my money in my name publicly in, uh, until I come back because I'm coming back. So uh, one of my favorite uh, uh, biblical scholars is a guy named Kenneth Bailey. Ben uh, uh, Deaver talked about him in some of his quotes last week. Uh, so Ben and I went to the same seminary, and at times uh, we both were really in, uh, loved using this guy's, uh, this guy's commentaries. Something that not a lot of maybe uh, folks say, but if you've been to seminary, you can say that. So Kenneth Bailey, he is a, a Middle Eastern scholar, not here, but there. He lives in the Middle East and has uh, taught there, I think it's the University of Lebanon, for like 40 years until his death. And so he's very familiar with Arabic culture, Arabic language, and uh, Middle Eastern culture and languages are much more similar to the ancient uh, uh, culture and languages that the Bible was written in. So his insights are usually very helpful. Here's one of his comments here. As the nobleman distributes gifts to his servants, he is in effect saying, once I return, having received kingly power, it'll be easy to declare yourself publicly to be my loyal servants. So I'm more interested in how you conduct yourself when I'm absent. And you have to pay a high price to openly identify yourself with me. Because remember, the subjects in the land didn't really like this king. So the, 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 the servants would have had to, uh, it would be costly for them to publicly align with the king while he was gone, right? And then uh, the other one that builds on this, the other point, let's see if we can get it here, is what they had gained with it. That's the other one that could be slightly translated a different way. It could, there's, there's this word in the original language is actually, or this phrase is actually just one word, and it's only used here, this one place in the entire New Testament. And so it's a little difficult to translate. Not impossible, but difficult. And there's two senses. The primary sense of this phrase is actually how much business has been transacted, like the number of transactions. The secondary sense is, uh, is, is what most of our English Bibles uh, have chosen, is uh, how much they have gained with it. And I wonder if, along with Kenneth Bailey, if our modern capitalistic kind of lens that we see through has impacted the way that a lot of English translators have, have translated this. Um, again here, I think Bailey is helpful. Bailey says that from the second century onward, the Syriac and Coptic versions of this text have actually consistently chosen the first meaning. How much business has been transacted? The number of transactions. Most of the Arabic versions have done the same all the way up until modern day. And the difference is critical. If the master wants to find out how much had been gained by trading, he's going to ask them some form of, show me the money. But if he's asking, how much business have you transacted in my name? He will be seeking to discover the extent to which they have been openly and publicly declaring their loyalty to him during the risky period of his absence. A quick perusal of the account books will reveal the scope of the servant's public exposure as loyal servants of the absent nobleman. A full ledger will reveal that the entire community knew the servant in question was the master's man. And a nearly empty account book will witness to the servant's fear to be publicly loyal to him. 
All right, so you kind of see where this is going. So the sense here, this translation here issue, I think, really fits better with the original sense of this, this, this teaching, and I think it makes a difference. The sense better, uh, is better said, uh, because I'm coming back, I want to see how much business you've transacted. How have you been loyal to me while I've been gone? Have you chosen to use my stuff in my name, confident that I actually am coming back, or have you hedged your bets and held back? And you can see this bear out with the responses to the different uh, servants. The first servant reports, sir, your mina has earned 10 more. You see the humility here and how he answers? He doesn't say, I have made 10 times more with the money you gave me. No, he said, your mina has earned 10 more. And he gives it right back to him. He's a good steward. And so the master says, well done, good servant, because you've been faithful, not productive. Important distinction, because you've been faithful with a very little, I would like 13K, that doesn't sound like a very little. Because you've been faithful with a very little, I will give you authority over 10 cities. The second servant says, your mind has earned 10 more. It's the same thing. And he commends his faithfulness. I'll give you authority over five cities. And notice he commends their faithfulness, not their productivity at least not primarily. And notice what they get because of their uh, loyalty and productivity. It's not more comfort and money to keep for themselves. What do they get? They get more responsibility. That's right. That's the way Jesus tends to, to reward those who are faithful to him, as he gives them more responsibility. It's an honor, to be sure, but the master is looking for faithfulness. And that understanding is critical to how we understand this third servant. And his response. He had wrapped that thing in a rag, put it on a shelf, and uh, the king is angry because he didn't do anything with it. Was he angry because he didn't make enough? I don't think so. The servant says, actually, it's your fault that I didn't make more money with this. He tries to put it back on the, the master, and he, he does some dumb stuff here. He says, actually, I was afraid of you because you're a hard man, and you take stuff that isn't yours. So he's calling the master a thief, which is maybe, maybe it was, he's scrambling at this point. There's at least one potential reason why he might have done this. In that culture at the time, there were some nomadic chieftains, nomadic warlords that considered it a great honor to show their power and prowess by stealing other people's stuff. Maybe he really misjudged the master's character so much that he thought that this, this could get him out of it. But the master's not having it. He says, you wicked servant, I'm going to catch you in your words. So you saw me as a hard man? Notice he doesn't say, yeah, you're right, I am a hard man. But he says, okay, so you saw me that way? It still doesn't work. He says, if that were true, if you knew that I, would t I took the stuff that wasn't mine, you would know that I wouldn't have cared about the illegal practice of gaining interest in Israel. You were not allowed to charge others interest. That was a crime in Israel, although it still happened. It was illegal. God had said, this is a crime. So he, he said, well, if you thought that that's the kind of guy I was, you would have at least put it somewhere so I could get interest with it. But actually, no, you have done nothing with it because you did not think I would become king. You didn't want to become loyal to me, and you were waiting, hanging back, and seeing what would happen. He didn't want to be associated with the master. And so the rest of the story shows how this is kind of true.
At the end of the scene, uh, we see Jesus. He doesn't fire or kill the third servant. So here's where some of the twists come in. See if you can kind of sit this and feel this. He doesn't fire or kill the servant. That would have been expected. Instead, he just takes what he has and gives it away to one who has been faithful. And then he orders all of the enemies to be brought in front of them and killed. That they would have expected. But the parable ends before it was carried out. That's what the audience would have expected. But as like a lot of the parables that Jesus teaches, it ends in a little bit of a cliffhanger. And I think that they would have gotten this a little bit more than us. So they would have been really familiar, really comfortable with the conquering king returning and killing all of his enemies. But the, the, the curtain closes. And just like uh, the parable of the prodigal son that we talked about recently, the story ends in a cliffhanger. What's going to happen? The father comes out and does something no one would have expected. He pleads with his uh, you know, impudent uh, older son to come in and enjoy the master's party and enter into, a joy, into the joy. But the, end, the story ends with the, the older son still refusing to come in and still out there. He's got a choice and the audience is like, what's he going to do? And this one ends that way too. What's the master going to do with his enemies? We don't know. But Jesus ends this story heading to Jerusalem. And he's, with, he's about a week away from being crowned king by the crowds. And then they turn on him so quickly when he doesn't do what they want as soon as they want. And then he's killed. But this guy, this Jesus, the true king, Rather than come and slay his enemies, he intentionally chooses to love them and die for them. Jesus intentionally did that. He's the one who dies for his enemies in their place because he's the upside-down king. His kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. And he is about to leave. And we're still waiting for him to come back. But he's, he's the king that loves his enemies. And so the big idea here is this. Jesus' return is not going to happen as soon as uh, we want so we're to live loyal and, uh, and faithful to him now while we await his return. And we're still waiting. I'm still waiting. Jesus has not come back yet. And we're still waiting. It's hard. It's not going to happen. Jesus' return for you and for me, we're still realizing it's not going to happen in the timeline or in the manner we want. It's tough, I think, for us Americans who are used to having things our way right away. Anyone old enough to know, have it your way right away at, what's that from? At Burger King now? Yeah. Am I dating myself on that one? Yeah. And we're just like the Jews. They had some real, uh, at the time, they had some real clear ideas of what it was going to look like when Jesus came back, when the king came and, uh, and liberated everyone and defeated his enemies. We're in the waiting. And the waiting, though, the waiting is the proving ground for Christians. Let me say that again. The waiting is the proving ground for Christians because it's not exactly what we expect. And Jesus is interested in how are you going to wait? How are you going to show yourself loyal to me because I'm returning as you wait? Because the waiting is hard. Waiting is really hard. It reveals. Waiting strengthens and it also breaks. Waiting is hard. And we're not guaranteed, I probably don't have to tell you guys this, but if you carry the name of Christ, we're not guaranteed to have any sort of social standing that comes with that. And I think, uh, at least in, in my lifetime, I've seen a very pronounced cultural shift, at least 
I think, three different spots in our culture's uh, conception of uh, response to Christianity in my lifetime. The first, I think, was well underway before I was born, but I think I kind of got in on the tail end of it. First of all, for a long time in American culture, it seemed uh, like the general response to Christians and the church was that it's generally a good thing. Like, even for those who didn't follow Jesus or didn't go to church or all that stuff, they knew they probably should and that Christians were good people. It was regarded as a good thing. And then as culture shifted, it began to, see, be, to be seen as more of a neutral thing, just one among many options. Some good stuff, some not so good stuff. It was kind of neutral. And, and now in recent years, the culture has shifted to seeing Christianity and those who follow Christ in the church as more evil. It's an interesting stance. It is, not, uh, it is no longer a, uh, a power stance in our culture to be a Christian, at least not in the way that Jesus says. And so I think uh, many Americans are stuck in the past. Uh, even for those who didn't even specifically grow up in that time, I think we can have this sense, this kind of nostalgic sense that in America that Christians uh, should have some sort of a stance or a power in the culture, but that's kind of gone. And... Um, I think in, in many ways, we're not used to suffering for Jesus in a culture that's antagonistic towards Christ, antagonistic towards those who follow Christ. And uh, it's hard to live for Jesus now in our culture. It's hard. The Christ card doesn't really uh, get accepted a lot of places. And I think it's only going to get more difficult. And so it leaves us in a spot very similar to where the servants were while the, while the master was gone and they were in the midst of a very antagonistic culture. You know, really more like most, of the Christ, most Christians who uh, in other parts of the world uh, have been living for a lot, of, a, lot of, uh, a lot of human history. And so the big question that requires a response for us today is, how will you choose to live now in this waiting? And this is one I'm gonna ask you to pause and consider. If you've got a piece of paper, your journal or your phone, bring it out. I'm gonna give you just a few seconds to ask this question. How am I choosing to, rot, to live now in the waiting? The right answer, uh, you know, the, the right answer, the, the good answer is not gonna give you any extra credit. Just between you and the Lord, how am I doing in the waiting? If you're online, you're invited to do the same. How am I responding? Am I responding kind of more like the townspeople, the people of the land in the parable that definitely did not want him to be king? And uh, they rejected him and his rule and gave themselves just totally over to other loyalties. Are you willing, are you staking your life, you know, practically on that this whole Jesus thing is not real and that he's not actually coming back and will uh, hold an account, will call people into account that he's not actually going to return as the king of the universe after all? <clears throat> are you more like the third servant, you know, who could talk the talk, but he didn't actually align his actual life with Christ, at least out in the wild? Choosing to instead hedge your bets to hold off publicly identifying with him. And in some ways, this response, I think, is similar to the, the, the people in the land's response. Ultimately, it leads to some sort of functional rejection of Jesus as your Lord, as the one to whom uh, 
uh, you're going to give an account and that his way is the way you're supposed to be following and then you give yourself to other divided loyalties. Perhaps you haven't really been doing much at all with what you've been given. You've got a conflicted heart. And I'm going to... I'm going to encourage you today to consider, I think all of us on some level uh, fall here. We have conflicted hearts. This isn't a once and done category. This is a temptation that we're constantly being tempted with. This is something we're all being constantly pulled towards. I think that this is, this is the way of culture. This is the way of life to be subtly but increasingly moving toward having divided loyalties in our heart. All you have to do to get there is nothing. <laughs> Right? All you have to do to have a divided heart, to have a conflicted heart, is nothing. And the kernel will pull you there. Subtly, ever so subtly, looking to other things to secure your life. Other saviors. Other things. Other loves. The Bible calls these idols. Other ways to make your life work apart from trusting in Christ. So I'm, I, I kind of want to uh, come down the home stretch here with five signs of a divided heart. There's tons more. We'll tie it off at five today. And uh, again, man, this fly is like really into me. Are you guys seeing that thing? Wow. I hate flies. Okay. And as I go through this list, uh, just briefly, I want you to pay attention to the ones that uh, bother you or feel offensive because that's typically a sign of something to pay attention to. One sign, you have a divided heart you no longer factor Jesus into the decisions in your life. He's not practically there when you're deciding things in your day-to-day life. He's there at church when you go, but it's more of a Sunday go-to-meeting mentality and then the rest of your life, he really doesn't practically enter in, even if you call yourself a Christian. Jesus doesn't practically show up. Your loyalty to him has become divided amongst him and many other things. You are no longer doing business in his name out in the wild. And in fact, you haven't actually talked about him in quite some time. Man, I can really relate to that sometimes. Next one, you don't have a regular, real, personal relationship with him. It's more a thing that you know about, but you don't experience a real personal relationship with him that feels like a relationship that you would have with a friend where you actually talk to one another and it feels like it's vibrant and changing and you feel yourself being led and moved on some sort of a regular basis. Regular rhythms of prayer and reading his word are few and far between. Man, this can be so tempting, especially during seasons of busyness. That's me right now, if I'm honest with you. This is the temptation for my divided heart these days. It's been easy to be so busy, or at least feel like I'm so busy, that uh, you know these practices and rhythms of prayer and reading his word get a lot more scattered, and I don't really feel that personal relationship with him when that's true. Maybe you can relate to that one. Next one. Number three, you find yourself choosing not to speak about him when you could. This is, a, this is one that I think uh, takes some paying attention. But perhaps you fear personal ridicule. If there's opportunities to speak of Jesus and you intentionally choose not to, like you notice those topics come up, you notice there's a chance to either speak about Jesus or his way or your allegiance to Christ and you don't. I think there's some times when there's some strategery 
involved and not always just talking about Jesus all the time. But I think you know in your heart of hearts, when you keep making those choices over and over and over, maybe there's something going on there. You're afraid of something. Maybe you're afraid of uh, lack of advancement in your career, if you talk about Jesus. Or a loss of real or perceived social standing. Perhaps your online following or your reputation in some way. Moving on here, you find it hard to be generous with your money. I wrote your kind of tongue-in-cheek here. Is it so easy to think about your money as your money? If so, your heart becomes divided. It's not your money. We're all stewards of what God has given us until he comes back. Not just our money, but our time and our talents and everything else that he's given us. Everything that we could use. Yeah, but I think money is an easy one to see. Because as uh, we've talked about here uh, before, greed, oh, there's an offensive word, greed is the air we breathe here in our culture. It's just, it's the air we breathe. And I think all of us are just constantly being bit by that brown recluse. And the venom is always flowing through us. And we don't even know it. We don't feel the bite. It's the air we breathe. The temptation to look to money to secure our life, to bring us happiness and peace or security or whatever, that's so often there. Us. And as Jesus says, you cannot serve two masters. You'll either hate the one and end up despising the other. You cannot serve, what does he say, both God and money. Oh man, I think we in America especially need to pay attention to this one. The last one here may be the place where you find uh, your offense or your resistance. You tend to rise and fall, your personal sense of rising and falling along with other human leaders or power structures. You get your own sense of power and comfort and safety or rightness. They're so tied to human leaders or power structures that they take the place in your heart that Jesus should have. This one can be really subtle, but I think it's really important for us to ask ourselves. This could be a celebrity pastor or some sort of influencer. There's a lot of those these days. It could be a political leader, right? We see this a lot these days. The elephant in the room of American Christianity, I submit, and I think many others do, is this quasi-religious devotion that some have over Donald Trump. Now, I'm not talking about did you vote for Trump or do you think some of his policies were good? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about this kind of religious devotion to him that ultimately is looking to him to secure your life, looking to him and what he's gonna do to secure even the church and our place in culture. It could be devotion to a political party. Now, I mean, I called out the right there a little bit, but equal opportunity offender here, this temptation to look to power, human power structures and human leaders, it flows on the right. It flows on the left too, of course. But I think it's a little bit harder to see perhaps on the left. It's a lot easier to see. I think the right has a tendency to tend to look to strong men, a strong man for their sense of security. Anyone offended yet? If you tend to find yourself easily seeing, I want my side to win and I want them to lose, it's a us versus them mentality. If you sense that frequently in your heart, if you find yourself afraid that the others will win, there's probably something going on there. Especially if you find yourself uh, disobeying teachings of Jesus or going against the character of Jesus to follow probably got a divided heart. And so, like I've said, 
This, I think, in the divided heart is the natural flow for humans. Even as Christians, we're constantly being pulled to a divided heart because it's so hard to live in the waiting. Jesus hasn't come back yet. We're in the waiting, and it's so hard. So perhaps uh, if you're here this morning and you need to hear the call to repent, if you sense in your heart, yeah, I've got some divided loyalties, repent. Repent's not a bad word. It actually is just a simple word that means change your mind. Go the other direction. Jesus, uh, Jesus loves to give chance after chance, opportunity after opportunity to repent to those who recognize their need for him. Isaiah 53, 6 says, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one has turned to our own way. All of us are enemies of God by default. But Jesus loves his enemies, and he dies for us. The great but of the gospel is that but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, and the punishment that brought us peace was on him. The good news is that Jesus is not a tyrant like Archelaus, who slaughters his enemies. He is not slow to come back, as some count slowness. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow, as some might think about it. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but wanting to give chance after chance after chance for everyone to come into repentance and to choose to follow him. So repent now. Choose to follow Jesus again with an undivided heart. Perhaps as we close here, you find yourself more like the first two servants, the ones who are trying to be faithful. And so my encouragement to you today is keep at it. The Lord sees we know it's hard. That's why God has given us the body in many, in, for many, uh, one of the many reasons, but God has given us the body so that we can encourage one another, remind one another. It's worth pushing forward. Even when your productivity doesn't seem to be going that well. Even when you have poured your heart into people, maybe you've been discipling someone for years and then they walk away from the faith and, re- and reject you. Even when uh, you throw yourself into uh, leading a small group or into ministry or to speaking of Jesus and you get flack for it, it doesn't go well. When the results aren't there, be encouraged. God is not primarily looking for your productivity, but for your faithfulness. So don't get defeated. Don't give up. You've been given many gifts. And I want to end today... um, Two verses that will lead us into our last two questions. And so as the band comes up, I want to read these verses and give us one last chance to to answer a few questions. First, 1 Peter 4. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very word of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strengths that God provides so that in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. And then to close, Philippians 2. Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself a servant. He made himself nothing, taking the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. He didn't demand his own way, but he became faithful and obedient to death even, death on a cross. And therefore, God has exalted him to the highest place. This is how God 
rewards those who are faithful and who keep going. He exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on the earth and even under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is who we follow. He's not like Archelaus. He loves and he wants to, uh, wants to save So as we end here, the first two questions we've kind of uh, already touched on. Maybe you choose one of these as your meditations during this first song. How am I choosing to live now in the waiting? What gifts do I have now that God wants to use for his purposes? I guarantee you, you have gifts that you can use. And finally, as with any teaching, get in the habit of asking yourself, and I encourage you to ask yourself today, What is one thing I'm sensing God calling me to do in response to this teaching? How am I going to respond? What's one thing I need to do in response to this teaching? This teaching was recorded by Tallgrass at the Well. We're building community together by inviting people into the way of Jesus. For more resources like this, visit tallgrassatthewell.church.